This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, August the 3rd, 2023. Uh, the headlines today are full of you-know-who, a certain ex-American president who may indeed become president once again in 2024. The New York Times leads with all sorts of stories about the man. Some think he's great, some disagree, believe he's not so great. The Wall Street Journal also lead with Trump um, and this new legal case, uh, as well as the Washington Post. I, I think what all the papers seem to agree is that uh, the future is going to be incredibly interesting, dramatic, perhaps violent, perhaps catastrophic. The Washington Post suggests uh, that the 90 year, that the 2024 election is going to be all about Trump's legal battles. New York Times agrees. Uh, Trump's 2024 campaign, uh, the Times suggests, will make the voters the ultimate jury, which perhaps suggest that 2024 is going to be a truly historic year. Another 1968, for example, uh, according to CNN, 1968 was the year that changed America. Others believe that it was a year of turmoil and change. Uh, time, uh, Smithsonian suggests that, um, uh, that 1968 was the year that quite literally shattered America, whatever that means. Uh, and lots of people beginning to compare 19, uh, 1968 with 2024, uh, especially since the Democratic Convention in 2024 is going to be in Chicago, like 1968, one of the epicenters of that dramatic year. Um, and the elections are being compared as well, the 1968 election and the upcoming uh, 2024 election. Time ran a piece about this featuring my guest, Luke uh, Nickter. Um, he's a distinguished American historian, uh, teaches at Chapman University in Southern California, has a new book out, an appropriately important new book out, came out a couple of days ago on August 1st, The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968. And I'm thrilled that Luke is joining us from Ohio. Luke, is uh, is history repeating itself or could it? Between 1968 and 2024. Well, first, thanks for having me on. It's it's a real pleasure. Uh, you, you know, I don't know that history repeats itself. Some have said that, or even said that it rhymes necessarily. Uh, but certainly, the 1968 presidential election is arguably the most divisive. Now, as your intro said, maybe we'll surpass that in 2024. But the most divisive in modern U.S. history. And I think that era of the late 1960s is the one, arguably, that most resembles our era today. And while there's you know, no shortage of books about the 1960s, I think there's really not been a, a recent history that it, it talks to everyone who's still around, examines all of the new evidence that surfaced, and really tries to, to come up with a fresh take. And so that's what I've tried to do. The title is provocative, Luke, particularly in 2023, when... American politics may not be ideal, but it isn't formally broken. Why do you believe that 1968 was the year that broke politics? Why is that the title of this book? 
Well, I think all presidents uh, now and any other period govern and are used to governing during a period of crisis. It might be political, it might be economic, social, cultural, military, foreign policy. And I think, you know, if you look at the sort of Johnson-Nixon era, to use that term, of the late beginning in the late 1960s, you really check all those boxes. And I would say more recently, you know, while we don't have a military draft anymore tearing the country apart, uh, we haven't had the rash of assassinations that you saw in the 1960s, thankfully. But I would say also that, you know, the Trump-Biden era is another one in which you would check all these boxes. Yeah, the boxes of economics, culture, politics, and perhaps not military. America is currently not involved in a military uh, adventure overseas. So, Luke, um, not everyone is going to be familiar with 1968. The, the, the word has this romantic uh, suggestions as well, of course, in 1968 in Paris and in Prague. But tell us a little bit about the America of 1968. Who were the, the main political characters in your dramatic narrative? Sure. And I, th I, you know, I'm a bit of a cynic. So every time I pick up a new political book, I try to figure out, you know, what's what's the author's angle? Is there some kind of an agenda or a preference? And this is a book that really focuses fairly equally on the four major sides of that campaign. So you have outgoing president, Democrat, you know, Lyndon B. Johnson. You have the Democratic nominee, his vi current you know, vice president, Hubert Humphrey, the Republican nominee, the former vice president, Richard Nixon. You have uh, and then you have a very unusual situation with a strong third party challenger, which only happens about once a generation in American politics, being the former and future governor of Alabama, George Wallace. And so this alone, these are sort of politicians who are, are legendary. I mean, Nixon and Johnson, legendary in their own generations. Hubert Humphrey, legendary, going back to the Philadelphia Convention when he declared civil rights, the next great crusade in American politics. Well, and then there's Wallace. We could talk a whole hour just on Wallace. So right from the beginning, it has kind of all the ingredients of you know interesting, sort of colorful characters. Yeah, we did... Um... We did a, um, a show with Samuel Friedman. I'm sure you're familiar with his new book on Hubert Humphrey. You mentioned um, his uh, speech uh, at the, what was it, the 1958 Democratic Convention? It was uh, 48 in Philadelphia. Sorry, 48, uh, yeah, where he, for the first time, made it clear that the, that the, the party, in his, belief, in his words, needed to prioritize uh, race and declared war, I guess, on, on mm -hmm. Southern Democrats. It seems as if you, you mentioned these, these four characters. Um, Nixon, of course, doesn't need any introduction, uh, nor LBJ. George Wallace is a dramatically divisive figure, dramatically divisive life. Humphrey doesn't seem to be to, to fit comfortably with the other three. What do you make of him and his behavior and, and, and failings in 1968. And of course, there is a fifth man, uh, uh, a certain uh, Bobby Kennedy, um, who died in 1968, was assassinated. Another major figure here. Well, to take, uh, you know, Humphrey first, um, you know, in every election, we often remember the victor. Uh, we might remember the other side, but we frequently forget, or at least forget first, you know, what we call the also-rans. And I think in 1968, Hubert Humphrey was more than an also ran. You know, he was someone, I think, who really could have been president. 
Uh, maybe not in 1968, but maybe in 1960 was his best chance had the Kennedys not defeated him in that West Virginia primary. Maybe at a time of more uh, international and domestic tranquility when he could focus on his bread and butter, sort of de uh, democratic kind of um, issues like education, social security, jobs, and the economy. Uh, I think by 68, you know, he was probably the most honorable man in the race of the four, but it might have been, you know, missed his window to, to become president. Well, wasn't he, um, it's not just missing a window, it wasn't by accident. The train didn't pull out early. I mean, he made a fundamental error in supporting the Vietnam War, didn't he? Well, in 1960, there was no Vietnam War. You know, I think in 60, but by 68, he had, he'd made the error. Well, I don't think he supported the Vietnam War. He was very careful to divide himself from Lyndon Johnson. I think he supported Lyndon Johnson. And, you know, some encouraged him actually to resign the vice presidency and really kind of be his own man on the campaign trail in 1968. And, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, a he fig he's a figure of compromise. So after September 30th on the campaign, he does actually speak from the podium without the vice presidential seal which he had always used, uh, which lended as sort of, a, you know, officialdom and decorum to all of his speeches. But he didn't want to betray Johnson. I think he, uh, there was a sense of loyalty. There was a sense that it's, he, he's already reached the nation's second highest job in politics, and he got there because of Johnson. So I, I don't know that he supported Vietnam, but I think he was wedded to Johnson's position. And there was no way to divorce yourself from Johnson without effectively uh, declaring war against Johnson. When did Johnson announce that he wasn't running again? March 31st on, on, in the evening on live television at the end of, of, of a, a Vietnam speech. It was a surprise ending. He had two versions of the speech ready. Uh, one, just the text of the speech responding to the Tet Offensive and how the war was going at that time and how Johnson was trying to shift now toward negotiations that would begin in May in Paris. And at the very end, he had this dramatic final lines where he said he would not run for office. He would not accept the nomination if his party nominated him because he wanted to focus all of his remaining time on peace in Vietnam. Was it a cowardly decision by a man who was anything but cowardly or doesn't appear to be cowardly? Why wouldn't he run again? Well, I don't, I don't know cowardly. Uh, um, I mean, he, I think Johnson had a great understanding of historical precedent. And there were three important precedents during his lifetime. You know, his two political heroes, Woodrow Wilson and, and FDR, uh, did not make it to the end of their terms, you know, in full capacity. Uh, Wilson was largely crippled his last couple of years. FDR, of course, died in office in the spring of 1945. And of course, Harry Truman in 1952, uh, dramatically in early April of that year, decided he would not run uh, again for a new term against uh, General Dwight Eisenhower. So I think Johnson understood precedent. He wanted to finish strong. And I think as I document in the book, I think his own personal health was a greater factor in his decision uh, than perhaps we Americans knew at the time. Why did he leave it so late? And did he essentially dump the, the presidential nomination on Humphrey? I mean, how much did Humphrey know? Uh, well, late, that would be very late by our standards of today when campaigns start early. And I mean, yeah, early. it's as if Biden, I mean, it's as if Biden would wait until what, March of next year to, 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 to announce that he wasn't going to run for president, which is quite conceivable, but it would be shocking. 
Well, I, I think it's the right move if you're the sitting president, uh, because the moment you announce uh, you're a lame duck, the media, the spotlight has been moved off you to the to the challengers. And, you know, the energy is gone. Uh, your staff will quit in droves and work for the challengers. And so I would guess, I mean, I have no evidence to support this. I would guess that Biden is also aware of two of his Democratic heroes, Johnson and Truman, and, and when and how they decided uh, ultimately to not run again. So it's a very difficult situation if you're the incumbent president because you want to leave your party in the best possible situation. And, and you can debate whether Johnson did that with Humphrey, because I agree with you that, that effectively Humphrey was in a very strong position to become the nominee instantly because he at the time, uh, the Democrats changed the rules in 1972. So they were not yet in effect in 1968 whereby the primaries weren't binding. You didn't have to enter primaries. They weren't binding on the choice of delegates. And so all these state and county chairmen from coast to coast who all owed loyalty to Lyndon Johnson and to the administration, you know, Hubert Humphrey, you know, inherited overnight the, the, you know, the overwhelming majority of the same delegates that Lyndon Johnson would have had had he run. In a way, though, uh, Luke, you're presenting this world as being not unusual there, LBJ was imprisoned and affected by the, the president, the, the precedents of, of Wilson and of, uh, and of Truman and of, uh, and of uh, Roosevelt. Uh, so, so you're suggesting a degree of co continuity, but 1968 was also the year that everything snapped. What was different? about this crisis than previous crises? Well, I think, in the, uh, well, starting uh, first and foremost, the crisis was both at home and around the world. You know, in your introduction, you mentioned Paris and Prague. We could certainly expand to go to Nigeria. We could go to uh, apartheid in South Vietnam. The Chinese Cultural Revolution hasn't been mentioned. I mean, it really was a kind of worldwide uh, political, social, cultural, and even youth phenomenon uh, only partly related, and we, ha we haven't mentioned Vietnam, where 500,000 troops are stationed there, in addition to non-American, you know, allied troops in Southeast Asia. And so the, the, really, people were just stirred up. They were stirred up at home. They were stirred up around the world. And at least in the U.S., neither political party, uh, the political class, seemed to have the answers. And Although whether... some were able to tap this anger and unrest and disappointment better than others. I mentioned Bobby Kennedy. He seemed to understand it better than most. Certainly Humphrey didn't. He seems like, even if he wasn't that older man, he seems like uh, older than he actually was. LBJ had checked out, as you said. He was a man who decided that, um, that, he, was in, that, he, that he had become a, a historical figure. You mentioned Wallace. Was Wallace, do you see Wallace's understanding the times better than, than others. And of course, we're going to get to Nixon, who I think is the key figure in 1968. Well, certainly. And, and you know, I haven't addressed Bobby Kennedy, so let me do that before Wallace. Um, so in terms of the other also-rans, lots of other brand names, uh, not just Senator Robert Kennedy. And here next year, we have potentially have another Robert Kennedy in the race. As yeah, I want to talk about that later. Get ready to go to Chicago. Um, Eugene McCarthy was really the first to have the courage to challenge Johnson from the left, mainly on the war. And on the Republican side, you have uh, California Governor Ronald Reagan on the right. You have Nelson Rockefeller, who's kind of in and out, depending on the week or the month, on Nixon's left. Nixon kind of riding that center lane as much as he can 
uh, in the Republican Party, with former vice president, with former president Dwight Eisenhower, kind of looking over the shoulders of everyone, making sure no one gets out of line. Uh, and then we haven't mentioned Wallace. And so Wallace, Wallace is fascinating because Wallace, like Johnson, um, is is reacting uh, to the year's events and, and has made a great evolution. Uh, you look at how Wallace came to power. You know, he first runs for governor in 1958 and is defeated. And, and just to remind everyone, this was governor of Alabama, of course. Yes, in Alabama. Uh, and runs as kind of a, I would say, kind of a moderate conservative, uh, kind of a New Deal-inspired conservative Democrat. And then he shifts dramatically to the right in 62 because he wants the support of race-focused uh, uh, voters in 62. In his inaugural address in 63, he pledges segregation today, tomorrow, and forever, and makes some of the most over kind of you know race-based appeals to those voters in, in Alabama. But by 64, he begins to have the first taste of national politics, uh, moderates his message, no longer makes sort of these, these obvious, you know, overt racist appeals, because uh, he needs a message that will translate beyond Alabama and beyond the South. And 68 is his first kind of full bore national campaign. Uh, he polls 23%, just below Humphrey's 28 and 29% into the fall of 1968. He wins 10 million votes, uh, really plays kind of a spoiler role in a number of states. That Why were people voting for, for Wallace? Was it essentially um, a segregationist vote? Well, it, it, I would say absolutely if we're talking about 58 or 62 or maybe 64. But by 68, it was really more a, a, of a sophisticated message. You know, the voters who were motivated by the issue of race primarily didn't need to be comforted by Wallace. You already knew that he was your guy on that issue. In 68, race was really, for Wallace, folded into a broader set of grievances that today look familiar to us, kind of anti-elite, anti-establishment. You know, Wallace didn't use the words drain the swamp, but I would imagine if they would have occurred to him, he probably would have. And then, of course, there is Richard Nixon, who's, in my view at least, the most important figure in 1968, even if he doesn't necessarily quite play the central role that he did later. I've done many shows on Nixon, one with uh, the historian Kevin Boyle. I'm sure, um, uh, Luke, you're very familiar with his new book, The Shattering America in the 60s. He sees Nixon as being the symbol of what changed in the Republican Party. Uh, you just wrote something in the Wall Street Journal, an interesting op-ed, suggesting that Nixon would have understood the Russians. Tell us about your interpretation of Nixon in 1968 itself. Was he shifting to the right or to the left? Did he see um, Wallace as, uh, was he trying to win the votes of, of the Wallace voter, of, of, of the, the Humphrey voter? And, and well, did he redefine Republican politics uh, in, in the 60s? Well, I, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of layers to your question. I, I think at a most fundamental level, um, and Nixon, I would say, shifted ever so slightly to the right compared to his 60 race. And the 60 race with Henry Cabot Lodge, he really was on the kind of moderate to liberal side, uh, a, a direct heir to Dwight Eisenhower. And then, of course, the Republicans shift dramatically to the right in 1964 with Barry Goldwater. 
So in 68, Nixon found a lane between those two campaigns. I think Nixon's goal with LBJ not running, in other words, a centrist was not running, was to ride in that center lane for as long as he could. Don't forget, Democrats have a huge voter registration advantage in almost any election, even to this day. So for a, a Republican to win, you really need to run as a centrist Republican because you need every Republican vote. You need most uh, crossover independent votes and you need some conservative Democrats. Whereas for a Democrat to win, all they need are Democrats to, to vote for them. So Nixon tried to ride over that center lane and win some of the millions of voters who put Johnson over the top in 64, who seemed ambivalent about Humphrey in 68, and we know fast forwarding ahead, many of those same millions in 64 put Nixon over the top, over, over McGovern in 72. So this is another thing that's going on in this book. It, it sort of previews this great political shift that's just on the horizon. You suggest, um, and this is one of the, the, the more intriguing um, conclusions of, of this new book, uh, that you think that Johnson probably wanted Nixon to win. I'm not sure how he voted. He wasn't public on this. What did you find in your research, Luke? And why do you believe that Johnson wasn't disappointed with the Nixon victory? Well, I, I wish I could be, um, I wish I could say I was so brilliant to have argued this at the beginning or the outset of the research or saw it coming. But uh, it was it was a complete surprise to me. Uh, in late 2017, I had a meeting with former Vice President Walter Mondale who uh, in 68, he co-chaired Humphrey's campaign. At the time he was Senator Mondale, he had Mondale's Senate seat. Uh, and he told me that in the 70s, he became very close to Humphrey and they uh, discussed 1968 many times, in fact. And he told me something I'd never heard before. He said, Lyndon Johnson absolutely did not want Humphrey to win. And he repeated that. And so I said, you know, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that he really wanted Nixon to win? And he said, maybe. Maybe. And so that started me down this path, this rabbit hole to figure out what, what did Johnson really think? And then among, among the new evidence in the book, probably the centerpiece of that is the first portion of the Reverend Billy Graham's diary, or as he called it, his VIP notebooks have just opened up. And an archivist at Wheaton College uh, outside of Chicago uh, told me that um, Graham, uh, Graham died at age 99 in 2018 and left instructions to gradually open the first portions of his diary. And so I was allowed to see and use the parts from the 1968 election that show that Graham served as, call it an intermediary, a messenger, a back channel, not just between Johnson and Nixon, but even with Eisenhower, with Reagan, with Wallace, and with other would-be challengers. And so it's, there's this verbatim content with presidents in this diary that I've never seen in any other archive that's not in any presidential library. Even Graham's auth authorized biographer, who was told at the time he had access to anything he wanted to write that book. This is Dr. Bill Martin at Rice University, uh, said, well, he must have held some things back. One thing that tied Nixon and LBJ together, that they were both very close to the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. I've just finished Beverly Gage's magnificent book on Hoover, won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, we haven't mentioned Hoover yet. Gage talks about something she calls Hooverism. Could it be argued in 1968 that this was the year that Hooverism won out, given all the violence, given the country's sharp shift to the right? 
you haven't well, mentioned Hoover. How central do you see him uh, and indeed the FBI and the sort of the, the development of a, of, a, of a security state, a surveillance state in 1968? Well, I think Hoover was something in common. I mean, there are not many people who could claim to be close friends with both Johnson and Nixon. Um, I think there was a, a, a better connection between them that I'll get to in just a minute. But I think by 68, um, Hoover was already in the decline. And I think you see that in the Gage book, too. Uh, he, had, he had had some rough publicity over COINTELPRO. Um, by about 66, he stopped sharing and, and cut off his liaisons with the CIA. Um, he, he, I think he, he knew that his end of his life was nearing and didn't want to be blamed for, for things going awry. Uh, in, for example, in 64, at the Democratic Convention in Atlantic City, he served as LBJ's sort of private Pinkerton security service. And when Humphrey asked for the same treatment at Chicago in 68, there was, there was no such you know, forthcoming off, uh, service coming from the FBI. I, I see the connection between Johnson and Nixon as being a little different. Uh, while uh, in, in, I, I borrow here from what uh, his daughter Lucy told me once, very different politicians, different policies, politics, but they had other things in common that, that formed a deep bond. They were both aware of their humble upbringings. They were both aware they, they didn't go to prep school. They didn't go to the best colleges, Nixon to Whittier, Johnson to what's now Texas State. They both thought that national media and Eastern establishment had an antipathy. And Lady Bird's diary says something like, it's another great new piece of evidence in this book. Lady Bird's diary says something like, I heard Nixon refer to Georgetown dinner parties in a way that's exactly how Lyndon would have said it. So I think, you know, bound together by their common enemies, uh, it did produce some kind of bond between them. And, and I think the final thing I would say is a Nixon presidency, and this, this is not really in the literature yet, um, is really a continuation of Johnson's. You know, Nixon gets credit for going to China, for Moscow. All these things were proposed by Johnson. He just didn't have the time or the energy to do these. So it's difficult in, in modern U.S. history to find a presidency more con contingent and unfinished. And Nixon inherited, you know, many of these ideas and, and kind of made them him own during his own presidency. And indeed, had it not been for, for Watergate, I know that's a, a counterfactual, which seems obvious today, Luke, then perhaps the Nixon presidency would be remembered as a relatively successful one, a centrist one. So again, this comes back to the question. I mean, Nixon was elected in 68. There was violence in Chicago, not the first or the last political violence in America. Um, what was broken in 68? I've asked you this before, but I'm still not clear what you think got broken. Well, obviously, the nation as a whole was divided. Voters yeah, but America's been in civil war in the previous century. It's always divided and always will. Well, no, not many people remembered that in the 1960s. I mean, there were a few, I, you know, I, no one remembered that. I mean, R R Nixon's speechwriter, Ray Price, once put it this way to me, to, to, to borrow from what you just said. If the 1860s were an actual civil war, the 1960s were a proxy civil war. And many people today, you know, are saying similar things. And here it is 55 years after 1968. And I think we're finally starting to kind of comb through it with a, in a more dispassionate way and make sense of it. And it might take 55 more years to, to make more sense of our era today. And perhaps we'll conclude that today is more divided than 1968. Well, let's fast forward to 2024. Uh, the four or five characters, we've got Wallace, we've got Humphrey, we've got LBJ, we've got Nixon. 
Um, which of these is most like Biden and Trump? And are there other characters you imagine in 24 that will somehow conform to, to what happened in 1968? Well, I'll take the easy one first. You know, I, I think Wallace was really the first sort of anti-elite, anti-establishment candidate, uh, politician to run a national campaign and do it reasonably successfully. And so I think you can draw a lot of lines from Wallace, his rhetoric, his message, his focus on a certain part of the electorate and uh, draw all the way to Trump. You know, the Democrats, their bread and butter, part of that FDR New Deal coalition were the blue collar, the labor union members. Um, you know, that was a core part of their vote. Uh, and, and no Democrat has won them as a voting bloc since Lyndon Johnson in 1964. Uh, and lately, it seems to be they're more, perhaps more on the Republican side of the aisle. So I think certainly the Wallace to Trump connection is, is not exactly. But I mean, there's a lot of similarities there. So but, uh, but the interesting similarity is that Wallace was running as a third party candidate. Trump is running, always has run as a third party candidate within one of the major parties. That's the oddity. And of course, Barry Goldwater also, who, who, who we haven't talked about either, uh, who, who ran uh, disastrously in 62, uh, he in many ways wasn't completely unlike George Wallace either, was he? Well, no. I mean, Wallace, I mean, Goldwater had a, a different political career and was more in, in Washington. But I think some of the issues and the voters they were going for were similar. I think with Wallace, though, he ran as a third party in 68, but ultimately concluded that was a mistake because, it, it, you know, there's very few issues today that would unite both parties on Capitol Hill. Concern of China, concern about AI, concern about social media. But the biggest of all probably is third party challenges. If you want to make an enemy of everyone, try to enter the race next year as a third party. And so Wallace learned that mistake and, and, and decided it was better to run in one of the, the major two parties, ultimately switching to be a conservative Republican later in his career. Uh, but, but Wallace in 68, at least, felt he had to run as a third party because he wanted to be free to criticize both major parties. He didn't like elements of, of each of them. Who did Wallace win more votes from, uh, the Humphrey or Nixon? Well, this has been a subject of debate. Many books have said it was more Nixon because they assume conservatives mean Republicans. But it was Humphrey's, one of his pollsters and strategists, Vic Fingerhut, who told me it was complete nonsense. Uh, of the 10 million votes, late switchers, he said, in the fall, the final six weeks of the campaign in 68, he said a full eight of 10 who switched back to Humphrey, uh, he believes, came from the Wallace side. These were the union voters, those traditional Democrats. That was their traditional home, uh, blue-collar, lower-middle-class voters uh, who, had, who had voted for, probably for Eisenhower and then Johnson in 64 and weren't sure what to do in 68. Some things never change, of course. It seems as if there's always Kennedys, maybe Clintons, maybe in the future Trumps in the election. We've talked about um, Bobby Kennedy, uh, who now is being sort of idealized by the left, but he was a controversial character. In the Gage book, he refers to J. Edgar Hoover as J. Edna Hoover, making fun of his homosexuality. Um, and of course, uh, RFK's son now, RFK Jr., is certainly as controversial, if not more so. What can we learn about 19? What can we learn about RFK Jr.? 
um, Luke from 1968. Is he the George Wallace of the campaign? Is he the um, is he the Nixon of the campaign? He, I think he's got a little bit of, of each one of those. Uh, I think the lesson of George Wallace in 2024 is is, is really applicable. And by that, I mean, um, you know, for example, someone like Robert Kennedy, does he run as what party is he, does he run for? Does he run as an independent? You know, the, the thing about Wallace that was fascinating, that'll be the, the same hurdle that those in 2024 need to overcome is how do you get on the ballot? You know, Wallace was unique in a sense that he got on the ballot in all 50 states. It's an incredible achievement. To, to go up against both parties and all 50 states, navigate 50 sets of laws, legal challenges to get on the ballot, signatures and, and paperwork involved. So I, we have a number. Cornell West is another one that we haven't mentioned. I don't know how many of these are actually serious candidates who will go all the way to November next year. But the first thing that I look for is going to be who manages to navigate the ballot process. Because if you can do that, I think that's the, the first hurdle that's the hardest. And you, then you have the ability to go all the way as long as you've got the fundraising behind it. I mean, Perot did that. And it seems as if what Nixon, uh, what, not Nixon, what, uh, and what Nixon and Nixon and Wallace had it in common in 68, as you've already suggested, they were all running culturally against the establishment. Again, and a very persistent theme in American politics. Um, Trump and RFK, if RFK does run, maybe as a third candidate, maybe conceivably, I guess, even as the Democratic candidate, they're going to be running against the establishment. And yet they're the most establishment figures. Trump, as a wealthy New York property developer, and uh, Kennedy as a Kennedy. Well, I think you summarized it very well. I mean, I mean, the idea of a populist billionaire in Trump is just a contradiction in terms. And but the I same Robert, is true of RFK. Well, Robert Kennedy seems to be, I'm not sure what he's really for. There, you know, one day I'll hear a proposal, say, on immigration or the border that makes a lot of sense. And then I hear vaccines and all the rest. And it's like, I don't know what planet this guy's from. So I, I don't know exactly. You know, I mean, politicians are smart. They figure out, look, I have to get across the finish line. I need A plus B plus C plus D to get there. They understand the formula. Trump, it's very awkward. It's sort of Republican plus blue collar plus the aggrieved in some way. The aggrieved is a whole category of aggrieved. I'm not sure what Robert Kennedy's formula is. It's so interesting. Well, it's alternative facts, and it's something that really annoys the intellectual establishment. He's vilified in The New Yorker and NPR, all the bastions of uh, progressive cultural establishment hate RFK, which I presume... Uh, RFK Jr., which I presume is he, he's thrilled by. One person we haven't mentioned, maybe we'll end here because there's so many cast of characters. Uh, Luke, we'll have to get you back in 2024 as, as this thing begins to unfold. It wasn't, I, I mean, to me, the, the closest equivalent to Joe Biden is Hubert Humphrey. Uh, even if Humphrey wasn't quite as old, he, he does seem somewhat archaic uh, as, a, as a kind of a, a casualty of history, someone who doesn't make their own history. What do you make of Biden in 2024 and what can we learn from 1968? I think it depends on which Biden we see. You, you know, you, t you show me a, a longtime senator from Delaware and typically I'd say you show me a Southern, you know, a, a Southern conservative Democrat, uh, the way they behave in Congress and their voting record. It, you know, I think in his core, that is who Joe Biden is. The question is, what does he have to become 
And is he, you know, is he, is he going to debate? Is he going to enter any primaries? Is he really going to campaign? What is it going to take to get the nomination? Um, and then, you know, how does he shift during the general election as they all do? I would say the closest in U.S. politics today to Hubert Humphrey is Amy Klobuchar, uh, who interned in Walter Mondale's Senate office, uh, actually in the vice president's office uh, in the 70s, I believe. Uh, so Biden is a, has a kind of a slice of the Humphrey, uh, but I think he's also very much his own man and likes to play the cards close to the vest. And finally, Luke, um, some people believe that politics is actually broken in America for various constitutional reasons. The Supreme Court, the Electoral College, the undemocratic nature in some people's minds of its politics. What happens if politics is indeed broken? Uh, what will happen in 2024? What's the fate of America um, in a country where politics is actually broken? Is it violence, much more violence than the, the violence around Chicago in 68? Is it cultural breakdown? Is it civil war, as some people have even suggested? Well, I'll suggest one way I think it's more broken and one way I think it's less broken than 1968. One way that's more, if you look at recent political polls of kind of, you know, if you had a son or a daughter in terms of your opinion about an ideal, you know, what someone they might date, for example, in their dating life, it used to be you might want them to, to date the same, you know, social class, the same perhaps race. Uh, but now it's often I want them to date someone of the same political party. And I think that's a that's a division that's different than the 1960s. But on the other hand, we don't have the draft. We don't have the Vietnam War. We don't have, you know, fingers crossed, assassinations and that degree of violence in the 1960s. Uh, so I think ultimately this book, um, implicit, I think, is a message of optimism and hope. Um, you know, we made it through the 60s, okay, and we survived as a nation. I think we can make it through this too, or at least I'll, I'll keep hoping. Of course, what you didn't have in 1968 was social media. Finally, finally, Luke, uh, what do you predict is going to happen in 24? You'll probably be wrong, but we're all wrong. But it'd be interesting to see what you think. I have been wrong consistently. So whatever. Well, you should out, be proud of being wrong. It's everything that comes who are wrong out of my who are really mouth, right. I, in 2016, I was in Vietnam to research the last book, and I assumed I would come home to a president-elect Hillary Clinton like, like most other Americans. Um, it, it, it's tough to say. I, I think uh, the power of the incumbency is, is big. And I think that if Biden can keep it together, it, it's his to lose. I, I don't see how Trump can do it because the only way, the, 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 the greatest way to get Democrats excited about voting for Biden again is if Trump's on the other side of the ballot. But if a strong third party peels away enough voters, you know, our elections are so close now, you don't need a Wallace 10%. You don't need uh, uh, you don't even need a Perot 20 percent. All you need is maybe five percent. And the third party challengers are doing that now between West or, or Robert Kennedy. So even having a third party who can pick off five percent, you know, could be decisive nationally and decisive in the key swing states and tip it, tip the ball back to Trump. 